Okay, we are, uh, this is part two. I don't think we've ever done this, Jeff, right? A, a two-part Easter series. You might have been wondering, well, what about the resurrection? We didn't talk a ton about that last week. But part of why we did that was because obviously the cross and the resurrection go hand in hand. And so often we kind of fly past the life of Christ and the death of Christ and we get to the resurrection and uh, we celebrate it, but it just doesn't necessarily translate into the rest of life. So we thought we're going to extend this a little bit. And today we are going to go right at the resurrection. And I want to ask you if you would to just imagine with me, because I know everybody here is in a different place in their journey with Christ. You might not be a believer. You may genuinely just be a seeker. You're just like, you're looking at this thing called Christianity. You may not know anything at all about it, uh, but you're curious, and this is a great place to be. Maybe you're online and you're watching. You just found us today. Well, I think this is going to be great literally for everybody that's here, wherever you are uh, in your journey of faith. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine that you are a citizen of the city of Corinth in 55 AD. Here's a little map. This city has a long, colorful history. Your hometown, because you live in Corinth, is the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. It has surpassed Athens, even, as a cradle for science and culture. It's a center for commercial trade. Literally, people come from all over the region to Corinth to do business. Corinth is the epitome of worldliness. And that means that the best that the world has to offer, think about what the world has to offer, wealth, power, entertainment, trade, even religious expression, it's all there. It's everywhere. And that city is known for it. You might think of it as the original sin city. It's Vegas on the other side of the world. But beneath all of the glitter of this booming Roman colony is a darkness. It's always there. Corruption and immorality are always beneath the surface, behind the scenes. Now, you've lived your entire life in Corinth, and life so far has been pretty okay. But recently, tragedy has turned your world upside down. And for the longest times, you just didn't think about things. You just kind of did what you wanted to, whenever you wanted to, wherever you wanted to. But now you're starting to ask some really big questions. Like, what is this life about? Why am I here? How did I get here? Why is there so much pain and suffering all around me? And why is it happening to me? Is there a God? Is he real? And could I possibly know him? Those are the kinds of questions that you're asking. You've never been very religious, but you get up one Sunday morning and you decide you're going to go to this group of people. They, they call themselves the way. You don't know a lot about them. You don't know what they do when they get together, but you decide you'll give it a try. You're kind of out of options. You're pretty desperate. 
So you go wandering into this gathering. You take a seat and this man stands up and he seems kind of excited. He says, guess what, everybody? We got a new letter. It's from Paul. And you're kind of like, so? (laughs) But the crowd starts to buzz because they haven't heard from Paul in a long time. And they're wondering what he might have to say to them. The leader hushes the crowd and then he begins to read. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a guy sitting behind you and he sort of leans forward and he says, that's the guy that planted our church about five years ago. And you smile and nod and then you kind of think to yourself, I must look really new. From the beginning of this letter, because they just read through the letter, straightforward, that's kind of how that worked in their day, Paul seems to be fixated on the death of Christ, which you think is a little bit strange. Right off the bat, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block. The Greek word scandalon, that's what you would have heard where we get the word scandal, a scandal to the Jews, and folly. That Greek word is moriah, where we get moron. Moronic to the Gentiles. Then a little bit later, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified. It's been 20 years since that gruesome day. But that's what Paul's talking about. The reader makes his way through the letter, and as he gets to the end, he says something that truly shocks you. It really does change everything. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, your eyes start to open. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then he appeared to all the apostles, Last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Memories start to flood your mind as you hear this statement of Paul's. You see, your dad... 
he would talk about this guy named Jesus. He, he recognized that he was a, a real person, but your dad said he was one of those religious fanatics. And that he was actually betrayed by his own people, the Jews, and then crucified by Rome. That's a pretty sad life from his dad's perspective. And your dad told you that the rumor of the resurrection was a conspiracy, made up. It was a fantastical story told by Jesus' followers after his death just to kind of keep the dream alive. The real story, according to your dad, was that the disciples of Jesus came at night and stole the body while the soldiers guarding his tomb were asleep. You believed your dad all those years, but just given how life has been going and where you are, you start to ask some questions. You start to wonder, how did dad know that? Was he there? He wasn't there. Did he know anybody that was there? Probably not. So where did he hear about that? And then more particularly, if the disciples did steal the body, did they plan to do that all along? Or did they just come up with that on the spot? Was Jesus in on the plan? It seems like he was killed for claiming to be God and, and that he would rise again. So if he knew that wasn't going to happen, doesn't it seem strange that he would sacrifice his life for a lie? Who does that? If there was a plan, who knew the plan? And is there any evidence at all for there being a plan to steal the body of Christ. You're beginning to think that the conspiracy theory may have a few holes in it. Like, let's go a little bit further. What about those guards? How did the disciples get past the guards? Well, here's a couple of explanations. Um, maybe they snuck past them. How does that sound? Well, those guards were under threat of life or death, however you say that, if they ever failed to guard whatever it is they were assigned to guard. So their life's on the line. Seems kind of unlikely that you could sneak past those kinds of guys. Maybe they overpowered them. Can't you imagine, imagine all those fishermen with their nets? Attacking the guards? Maybe they bribed them. It's possible. But you still got that threat of death thing. It's worth asking some questions about that. If they stole the body, there should be some kind of reasonable explanation for how that went down. What about the eyewitnesses that Paul mentioned? He said that Jesus appeared to all kinds of people. That does tell us that the body was definitely missing. And there was never a dead body pre presented. Nobody ever came along and said, here he is. 
the tomb was definitely empty. And according to Paul, a bunch of people claimed to see the risen Jesus after he died. How did the disciples convince everyone who claimed to see the risen Christ to lie? Because they all said they saw him. But if it's a plan, if it's a conspiracy, they would have known they didn't see Jesus, but we're going to keep the story going. If the resurrection were a lie, how did those who knew it maintain that lie for decades? Now, I'm going to fast forward out of Corinth, centuries. Do you guys have any idea how hard it is to cover a lie for that long? Hundreds of people, according to Paul, spread out over hundreds of miles over the years. They told the same story for two decades. That makes you think, well, what's in it for them? If it is a conspiracy, you would think there's some kind of payoff, right? Paul mentioned in his letter that for him... He said, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Popularity, power, prosperity, man, those would have been nice, wouldn't they? If that conspiracy was really paying off, but it doesn't sound like they got any of it. In fact, many of the people who were claiming to have seen Jesus died professing their conviction that they saw Jesus. There's no record that I'm aware of of anyone recanting their testimony, those eyewitness folks. There's another writer who said this about those eyewitnesses. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So I, you're thinking again, like, no, really, what is in it for them? What do they get out of this lie? What about love? So Paul, he mentions a lot about love later in that letter. And if the basis of Christianity was a deception, then how do you reconcile the gross contradiction between how Paul talked about love and basing the entire faith on a lie. Let me remind you of what you heard. Love is patient and kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. And here it is. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. If this were a conspiracy, that seems monumentally hypocritical, doesn't it? Or maybe the most loving person that has ever walked the earth really did die and rise again. Paul wrote all this, so what about him? As a boy, you heard about Paul. Your dad would talk about him out in the marketplace. You'd hear him. I mean, he's a, he's a pretty wild guy. So you've heard about him. You heard how he suffered, beat countless times, stoned, threatened everywhere he went, hungry, homeless. And all of that because he's trying to tell the story of the risen Christ. And in the midst of all that suffering, he is so full of joy and gratitude. It's a little bit strange. Now, he wasn't always that way. Because you heard about Paul when he was Saul. The story was that he ravaged the church going house to house, dragging men and women out of their homes and taking them off to prison for no other reason than believing in the resurrection. He said himself, personally admitted, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. How was Paul so radically transformed so many years after all that went down? He went from being an enemy of the church to one of the most beloved leaders of the church. How did that happen? Especially if the resurrection were a conspiracy. If it were then he would have either had to have been horribly deceived or he was in on it. But why would he get in on it? If the church is suffering so much, who wants to be on that team for a lie? Here's the problem. Paul never claimed that the devotion of Christ's followers was what led him to his conversion. He says the only thing that changed him was coming, listen to this, face to face with Jesus, the risen Christ. So that really creates a problem for the conspiracy theory because you've got a guy who wasn't a disciple, who wasn't at the crucifixion and the resurrection. He didn't have one of those initial appearances, but he is utterly convinced that he saw Jesus face to face and it changed everything for him. What do you do with Paul? So you're sitting here 
they're done reading the letter. And the more you listen and the more you think about it, the more the resurrection conspiracy theory, it it sounds harder to believe than the fact that he really did rise from the dead. You lean over to the person next to you and you ask the question, the question, do you think the disciples stole the body? And they look back at you and go, absolutely not. Didn't you know that the religious leaders actually started that whole thing? Like that was their way of covering for the fact that he really did rise. One of the eyewitnesses, a guy named Matthew, he took a note. He said, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Once again, nobody's arguing that the tomb was empty. And when they, that is the religious leaders, had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So in two weeks, you've heard two stories. Both challenge us to believe things that stretch us beyond the norm. The question we have to answer is this. Which is a more reasonable explanation for that empty tomb? J. Warner Wallace, who has done a fantastic job thinking about this whole question around the resurrection, he wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. If you Google him and watch his videos, he is so fascinating. Here's what he says. Reasonable, and we all know this, is the judicial standard, not possible. Reasonable. So what is the most reasonable explanation for what has happened here? That first story suggests that the entire foundation of the church is a fraud. And Paul actually acknowledged that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, all of Christianity falls apart. Here's what he said in that first letter to Corinth. If Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, in other words, if Christianity is just a little something that you embrace to get along, then we are of all people most to be pitied. The burden of proof is not on Christianity. There is a mountain of documented historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ. The burden of proof is squarely on anyone 
who would claim that there was some conspiracy to steal the body of Christ? Like, you can't just say, I'm a skeptic. I ask lots of questions. Answer them. Because there's a mountain of evidence or thorough, thorough answers to those questions. You have to actually provide evidence that that conspiracy took place. So as Christians, consider the evidence. Ask lots of questions. But if you have problems with a supernatural answer, then it won't matter how much evidence there is. I want to ask the question, so what, like we always do. And I want to tell you about a man many of you have surely heard of, but his name is Chuck Colson. He wrote a book called How Now Shall We Live? That's a great question after considering the reality of the resurrection. Here's a little bit about Chuck. He was special counsel to President Richard Nixon in 1969 and 1970. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man. That just means he gets it done. Behind the scenes, where nobody sees, whatever it takes. He was at the center of the Watergate scandal and actually went to prison as part of that conspiracy. Here's what he said in reference to the resurrection. And he gained this perspective having gone through what he did as Nixon's right-hand man. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Actually, far more than that. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. <laughs> You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Now, it isn't enough for us to all leave today and go, yep, I knew it. Resurrection happened. We're on the winning team. Chuck Colson would say, the resurrection changes literally everything. Everything about your life now and forever. So the question we have to ask is the title of his book. How now shall we live? If there's a risen Christ, what does that look like in me? How do I live today? When I get up in the morning, what do I think about? What are my priorities? Where do I, where do I invest all that God has given to me? How do I live if I am saved by a risen Savior, that's the question. 
That's the so what of the resurrection. And the people around us, we don't need to be freak shows, but they ought to see our lives and go, there's something different there. They don't live like the rest of the world. They are totally abandoned to whatever it is that God wants, not just what they want. So I want to give you a moment to begin thinking. Please don't stop today. Begin thinking about what difference it might make in your life and how you actually live every day. Think about what difference it would make if Christ really did rise from the dead. Take a moment, prayerfully consider that, and then I'll pray for us. Thank you. Thank you for the the precious, precious gift of your son. We have lots of questions, lots of struggles, lots of heartache. I thank you that you have done what needs to be done, done what we could never do for ourselves through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're grateful for that. And Lord, we invite you to everything about us. Lord, we, we say perhaps for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time, we say it again today, Lord, we surrender to you. You are good. You are right and holy, magnificent, marvelous. You are worthy. Lord, would you transform us like you transformed Paul and all the others who saw you face to face. Lord, would you transform us and then use us to reach a world that is full of darkness. Would you allow us to be a light set up on a hill, leading people to life? And Lord, until you return, would you help us to be faithful, steadfast, dependent, and courageous with the gospel? 
pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.